What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Now, Josh, before we record this show, there's something you should know about me. I don't do romance. My tastes are very singular. You wouldn't understand. When it comes to reviewing movies, Adam, just know that I don't go for the rough stuff. I'll take that under advisement, Josh. Will our singular tastes include an appreciation for the much-hyped adaptation of E.L. James' Fifty Shades of Grey? Join us in the film spotting playroom to find out. Did you ever notice there's no windows in the film spotting playroom? (laughs) By design. Also in the playroom, this week's top five movies we had to review. That and more. The safe word is Linklater. Ahead on film spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is presented by Mubi.com. Josh, it's been gratifying to see various listeners, especially on Twitter, tell us about their subscription to Mubi and how happy they are so far, including at Cavenugs, writing, You encouraged me to join Mubi, and now I've seen Twilight of the Ice Nymphs, and I'm claiming heavily diffused aqua pink damages. I don't know completely what that means because I haven't seen Twilight of the Ice Nymphs, but I'm intrigued. Sounds bad. It does sound bad. Sounds like bad. she's in trouble. Yeah, we might be in trouble, Josh, actually, if, in fact, we do get sued for damages. Our apologies there. If that doesn't sound like your cup of tea, some other movies that might be this week over at movie.com, they're showing some counter-programming or more extreme programming to Fifty Shades of Grey, including, Josh, I love this. They're showing the Swedish softcore film that Robert De Niro takes Sybil Shepherd to in Taxi Driver, that memorable scene. How did they even find that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> But I want to subscribe right now just to see that movie. They're also showing the movie The Language of Love, and they have a tribute to the deceased actress Elizabeth Scott. That would be The Strange Love of Martha Ivers, which also stars Kirk Douglas and Barbara Stanwyck. And their retrospective on the award winners of the Berlin International Film Festival short film competition has climaxed with a film by the now very well-known Duplass Brothers called The Intervention. They also have the film from beloved Japanese master Hirokazu Koreeda, I Wish. Mubi, of course, is a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, they introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. It's all just $4.99 a month. And listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi for free. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. Josh, I haven't learned a lot over the years about being a film critic, but I do know this. It's bad form to complain about having to go to the movies. Who wouldn't want to go to the movies for their job or at least one of their jobs? But it's just a fact that some movies we want to see more than others. And occasionally you do have to see one that you kind of dread. We should probably point out this has nothing to do with Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Totally unrelated. Okay. Totally. But you go, and sometimes you do get rewarded. The movie you were dreading turns out to be good. And guess what? You can have this experience even if you aren't a movie critic. Later, we'll share the top five movies we had to review. That is, movies we probably never would have made time for if we didn't have to see them. And then we were glad that we did. But first, our review of a movie we totally wanted to see no matter what. Not just because there was pretty much nothing else opening last weekend. That would be Fifty Shades of Grey. What was he like? He was... Polite, 
Intense, smart, really intimidating. Do you have any interests outside of work? What about you? I'd like to know more about you. There's really not much to know about me. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> I am. To what do you owe your success? I exercise control in all things, Miss Steele. It must be really boring. For the second time in three weeks, we're here to discuss a movie that we just saw, a still processing review of Fifty Shades of Grey, even if what I'm still processing is mostly that I saw it sitting next to you. There was a seat in between us. There was. I'm guessing... A strategically placed seat in between us. And I think we were the only men in the theater. Yeah. Or close. There was there was one sketchy guy alone a few sketchy. rows behind us. Is that where we're going? Well, thank goodness we were together, so one of us <laughs> wouldn't be singled out as sketchy. I'm guessing most people listening to us right now aren't going to require too complex a setup here. Either they've read the book or already seen the movie, huge hit at the box office as projected, or both. Or at the very least, they've digested some of the copious think pieces that have been published over the past weeks about the tale of Anastasia Steele, a college grad who becomes smitten with and more or less submits herself to the dashing dominant business mogul Christian Grey. Now, for me, save for a few tweets, I've somehow managed to avoid all those think pieces and reviews and not totally by choice. It's just the way timing has worked out for me. Josh certainly didn't want to dive into any of that before I saw the movie. And I'll admit even that maybe that's doing a disservice to this movie and to the discussion we're going to have to not be able to bring any of that stuff to comment on into the review. That's just how it's going to have to be. So I'm not 100% sure what I think even about Fifty Shades of Grey yet, but I am 100% sure I don't know what I'm supposed to think about Fifty Shades of Grey. Can you as Anastasia implores Christian to do to her at one point, enlighten me. What should have me all hot and bothered? And do you agree? That's part one. Part two of our game relates back to this week's top five. Kidding aside, a few seconds ago, we absolutely decided on the top five movies we had to review because neither of us probably would have made time for Fifty Shades without the obligation. Are you going to be making any last-second adjustments to your list, having just seen Fifty Shades, at least an honorable mention? No. No? So the problem, the main problem is, is there's not much here to get. I don't, I mean, do you need to get upset? I don't know if you get, there's not, there's not much here to dig into. Some people seem upset. Uh, Well, you know, the, the think pieces you mentioned, so I I hadn't read the book, uh, hadn't read any reviews of the film, but I did read a fair amount of the think pieces, maybe not recently as much as those surrounding the book. And once it became this cultural sensation, what did that mean? Uh, And It's very similar, I think, to our discussion of American Sniper in a sense that this was a movie – American Sniper we both went into before the controversy broke. Mm -hmm. So we saw it pretty much as a film. And I had said at one point I was glad for that because I could focus on what was on the screen, what it was communicating to me without all these other voices in my head. Fifty Shades of Grey, man, are there a lot of voices in everybody's head. So when it comes to this movie, from all angles, mm-hmm. you'll have people deriding the book and the sensation as, you know, something that supports abuse. 
degrades women. You have other people lauding it for being this um, liberating sexual novel for women who can express themselves in different ways and can exercise their right to, you know, to to enjoy erotic literature. And it's a freedom of speech thing almost. And you have all other arguments coming in. So I did want to set that aside as much as I could and say, okay, here's a movie about this book, at least the subjects of this book. And and what is it saying to me? What does it want to say about this topic, about sexual ethics, perhaps, about romance? I don't think it knows. <laughs> I don't think this movie knows what it wants to say or why it's even really made. It's a very confused film. It was interesting to me leading up to its release. Again, didn't read any reviews, but just on Twitter and elsewhere how giggly everyone was about it, right? So many jokes, and mm-hmm. we'll prob- we have made some, we'll probably make some more. But th- that's because we're all nervous about the subject to a degree. In, in a way, it's because it's an easy target. But it's also because we're all nervous about it. There's something here, just sexuality itself and what purports to be this alternative take on it. We're not quite sure what to do with that. So we make jokes about it. We try to laugh it off. The movie does not... It, the movie doesn't go for farce. It doesn't make jokes about it. But I feel like the movie was is still uncomfortable about the subject in that it doesn't really take it seriously. I mean, this this could have been a really interesting sexual ethics is a huge topic nowadays in all sorts of ways. Um, you know, how relationships are handled between professors and students is one of the most recent news items. Um, the whole campus rape controversy or, or issue that uh, came up last year and is still going. I mean, th- this is like a really volatile topic right now. And here we have a film that is set in that world and supremely does not know what to do with it. The ways it contradicts its narrative, uh, it doesn't know how it wants us to feel about its characters because it doesn't know. Uh, It certainly wants to offer a certain amount of titillation and it wants to, at the same time, back away from that. And let's bring it back to the text itself of the film. And let, let me ask you this. Do you feel that this is a movie that Christian Grey, the main character played by Jamie Dornan, who has this S&M secret that he brings the woman played by Dakota Johnson into? Do you feel like this movie sees that as something that is uh, risque in a freeing way? Um, of opening up a new sort of sexuality? Or do you see it as something that the movie feels he needs to be cured from? Because I don't feel like the movie ever decides. And so it has no point of view mm-hmm. to me. It has nothing for me to respond to, which is an odd reaction mm. for a movie on this topic, I would say. No, that's a fair point. I think you can make the case that there's a bit of a contradiction there in it wanting to show you a character who probably needs to be cured in some way. Certainly our heroine, who is our protagonist in the story, wants to make him more normal. That's something that she references, that he references at one point, whatever normal is. Sometimes she does. But at the same time, she is brought into this world and we see her enjoying aspects of this world. So that contradiction is there. Whether or not that's really a problem, I guess, is something we can maybe disagree on because I kind of like this movie, Josh. I did. I really did kind of like this movie. And, I can't wait for this. Well, this is where I said, we haven't had a lot of time. I haven't prepared a huge defense, but I'll tell you this. You talk about all these different topics that this movie could be dealing with, and 
I wonder why does it have to be about any of those topics? Why can't it simply be the story of one woman's sexual awakening and separate from sex, one woman's awakening as a woman, basically being brought from being this college senior who we meet at the beginning of the movie, that woman we meet at the very beginning of the film to the end of the film, I think is a substantially different character and substantially different enough to make it worth going on the journey that she goes on over the course of this movie. Why does it have to be about any of those topics? Why can't it simply be a type of love story that it clearly is trying to be? Because it's not about that. It'll have a scene or two like that, and then it will completely contradict it. There's no narrative trajectory or no no like sense of real conflict to this for her that it's some sort of difficult journey oh. she will have scenes almost every scene flips what it's trying to do from the scene before so there's no consistency to her character's arc or his character's arc for this to be considered any sort of journey the consistency is that contradictions are yeah, part of life and they're part this. of our they're characters not, yes i think not i think they are with this. i think that character is throughout this entire movie wrestling with that stuff i think that she's someone you see for example maybe this is one of those things that people are responding to it's disconcerting when you see a character you see any character but let's take this character she's clearly very educated and smart and well put together and seems to be in control of her life. And she comes into a situation where she's essentially being bought. You know, she's being paid for in some ways in terms of here's a computer, here's a car. She's sort of becoming a prostitute. And that's one of those things that I think we see that and bristle at. And yet it's there on the screen as well, Josh, that I think that character is bristling with that. She can't help but be impressed a little bit by all the cars and the helicopter rides and the offices and the homes and everything else. But There are numerous moments in this film where we also see that character then have to push that down a little bit and we see the real character come out and she's someone who isn't that impressed with all of that materialistic stuff. And so she's constantly fighting those things just as she's constantly fighting the fact. And I think we have to expect this and accept this. She's fighting with the fact that the things he is introducing her to are pleasurable and are titillating for her while at the same time going against her instincts, and maybe going against where she would like this relationship to ultimately go. We are constantly, as people, aren't we finding ourselves in situations where you're battling with this sense of trying to embrace life or do whatever you want to kind of lose control and let go? At the same time, you want to always be in control. And that conflict is something that this movie, I do think, is dealing with in this character, who also, I think, is acted very well by Dakota Johnson. I think Dakota Johnson has presence. I'll I'll give her that. She does have presence, but I don't think this has acted very well at all. What what you for what you're describing for that to work in a film, you need more than scene A will show her enjoying this. Scene B will show her crying about mm-hmm. it. You there are no scenes here where the conflict is captured I disagree. together. Which I, which ones do you sense that, almost that she's every actually scene, no every that, scene that she's in? No. Yes, no I way. really on her face. It's there, Josh. Scene after scene, what? that conflict. The, yeah, there's a scene of her upset. No. I agree with no, you. But where, where, those is the scene, being upset, where is the scene where she's playing with both at once? I would this say this film has does not have that near that level of subtlety. That's totally not true. One key moment, the best scene in the film by far, is the negotiation scene where they are over a business meeting having this negotiation confl- over the contract. That's yes, an okay scene, but she's not conflicted no, it's there. A good scene. She's yes, playing she is with conflicted. him. No, Josh, it's yes. It's part of the game. Of course it is. But 
that doesn't mean it's not hard for her to go against her instinct there, which is to embrace him and go with it. It's clearly a case where she would love nothing more than for them to get up on that table and do the things he just described to her. But she doesn't let herself. She's constantly in conflict no, that, with her instincts and emotions. But that's not the conflict you were talking about before. No, that's not the conflict right, but it's of an example. talking about how do I feel about this as a woman who's being used and I think there I'm are enjoying that, that. In that negotiation scene, that's purely one of their... It's one of the scenes where there's actually a little bit of smoke yeah. generated but that's because it's purely part of the game it's part of the pleasure side sure so so there, there's pleasure scenes and pain scenes here in 50 shades of gray and some of the pleasure scenes involve pain but what i'm getting at is there is never a moment where those are subtly in a nuanced way intermingled so i can feel any sort of character conflict now that that scene the negotiation scene uh, has a certain amount of heat and it may be, it may be the only one watching this movie, and, and this is going to be completely subjective. We talked recently in our Satyajit Ray film how we both found an extremely romantic scene in the world of Opu of a young married couple simply enjoying meals together. You know, th- that had a sort of heat to it. So it's it's completely subjective what you find th- that is romantic. In this film that is supposedly all about that, uh, the sense of passion and unbridled passion, I felt like the whole thing, someone was furiously trying to rub two sticks together to get a little bit of smoke. And, and right there we see there one little tendril comes up. And other than that, this thing is dead on arrival there because there's no chemistry between the two of them, except there, that one scene, they manage it and the performances. Dakota Johnson only seems like she has some sort of presence because she's standing up against the guy I'm sure will be cast as the next Superman in maybe 10 years because he (laughs) has that he has that exact look and performance style of all these supermen who we can no longer even remember their name, who they were. Uh, There is nothing here in this performance that generates any sort of tension, any sort of nervousness about her being at risk, which should be an element of this, of her being in any sort of danger. And, and I, it's, it's, he, you know what, it was almost like he was going for a Don Draper style of reserve and reticence and it just came out as completely blank to me. I thought it was you. What the? What a pleasant surprise, Miss Steele. Just Anna. <clears throat> just Anna. You're in here. I was in the area in business. Needed to pick up a few things. Are you free? Yeah. What can I help you with? Do you stock cable ties? Cable ties, yes, we do. I can show you if you want. Please lead the way, Miss Steele. Just Anna. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing and disagreeing about Fifty Shades of Grey. The one thing we definitely agree on is Dornan. It's as if every word he has to utter, no matter how innocuous it is, is a struggle to say. There's something so difficult in his performance, despite the fact that he almost seems to be not performing for most of the film. And there's a part of me that actually wants to give him some credit and chalk it up to his character's repression, his character's inability to express himself. You have to make But that I think that's pretty generous. You and I don't, think, I don't think it is interesting on screen. That's where I do think he's counterbalanced completely by Dakota Johnson, who 
we obviously disagree on a little bit overall in terms of not only her performance, but that character, because that contradiction, as we've been saying, is really what I thought she embodied in terms of being someone who can be obviously a little bit naive, but also never ignorant, someone who's clearly very intelligent and someone who manages to constantly, despite whatever power dynamic is supposed to be in the scene, be the dominant one. She's the dominant character in every scene of this film, I would argue, and it never comes off as any sort of play acting or she has to put on some kind of air. I would completely agree. And you're saying that's a positive? Yeah, I'm saying that's positive. How? It completely undercuts the the dynamic that is supposed to be... At play, I'm not that saying contradiction is what po- makes the dynamic interesting, Josh. That, there's no that it's struggle not, there. It's not dominant submissive because the one who's supposed to be submissive is constantly dominating the dominant. That's interesting. Because the dominant is a horrible actor, and these scenes are <laughs> no, so bad. It's that's not, part of it. It's not playing that's into the narrative. No, no, it's absolutely part of the narrative that that character is. Yes, she's is changing. And she's she's teasing him, and yes, it, it, that is intentional, but. It does not work because there's nothing for that to bounce off of. Well, I'm not going to get into a huge argument and defense of Jamie Dornan. That is for sure. In terms of, I know a lot of people, myself included, were probably expecting a lot more unintentional humor in the movie than we got. I mean, by far, the funniest line in the film is any time a character says the name Anastasia Steele. <laughs> I mean, that's the only thing that's really funny Whose about name is the better? movie. His oh, or hers. Well, better and... By better, you mean worse, yeah. more comical? Yeah. Definitely Anastasia, Anastasia Steele. Steel. Christian Grey, you can sort of imagine, but yeah. there's something about that. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> Anastasia that just cracks me up every time I heard someone say it. No, in terms it's, not, of, it's not funny. It's, it, no, it's, it's not, not campy. It's, no, it really isn't, which doesn't mean it, people won't find lines to pick on. Sure. But let me say this, going back to the think pieces you reference in terms of degradation or anything else. The two things I found interesting about it If there are those people, because I I don't know what they're arguing, so I don't want to just have a straw man here, but any notion that she's the one who's being degraded is interesting to me because, as I've said, I actually feel like scene after scene, she's the dominant one. And by the end of the film, there's no doubt the director, Sam Taylor Johnson, actually puts a very fine point on it in terms of having a bookend type of scene. She's taken control. She's completely taken control. And her last word, literally the last word of the screenplay, I think, is very telling and revealing. But where there is a sense, Josh, of me feeling like a woman is being turned into an object, it's in the unfortunate aspect of this movie, which is that it is focused on female body parts and there's no male yeah, body parts course. to counteract of that. Course. You talk about a film that's supposed to be maybe titillating or whatever it's supposed to be doing, pushing some kind of boundaries and all these mass audiences are flocking to it. What they're seeing is the same stuff we've been seeing on screen that Hollywood and the MPAA has been allowing yes. for decades and decades, which is we get to see this woman constantly nude, almost full body, certainly topless the whole time. And yet Jamie Dornan, all he gets to do is take his shirt off. It's the part whole of the film. movie's fundamental falseness and hypocrisy. Again, if she's supposed to be I'm blaming Hollywood, if, not the director. <laughs> if she's supposed to be in this power position, which the movie tries, that's another way that's undercut is by by not leveling the even leveling the playing field, let alone making the artistic choice of having him. Imagine that, how subversive that would have been if they had followed through on this theme, which I grant you is there in elements that she grabs control by only having Dornan be nude. 
You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that, and, and that makes me think of for a while there, you know, I wasn't I wasn't done with this film from the beginning. It actually held me longer than I thought it would. And for a while there, I thought, are we are we seeing something akin to American Psycho from Mary Heron, uh, which, which took you see Dornan, you think of the Christian Bale. Character yeah, the, yeah, there are Raven. some some character similarities, but even just the idea of subverting an original text mm-hmm. um, to to, you know, in a way, exactly flip it on its head um, and become some sort of satire. And there were those hints that, that you picked up on and, and resonated more strongly for you uh, in the in the Dakota Johnson character that I thought, oh, th- this could be really interesting. But it completely backs away from that. Like it backs away from so much in this film. It backs away from really confronting us with, uh, OK, what might S&M look like and like you said this the scenes in the red room or whatever it's supposed to be called our standard Hollywood women objectifying sex scenes so there's not, nothing there that makes us it should make us uncomfortable because it's objectifying but there's nothing new or unsettling there the movie backs away from the whole S&M element as well yeah I don't and, know I, I think I think maybe you're stretching a little bit thinking about the type of sexual acts we do see depicted on screen I'm not arguing, Josh, that they are really pushing boundaries, but to suggest that it's not pushing any boundaries at all, that this is stuff we've seen in mainstream Hollywood movies for years. It's not. It's definitely not. For a mass audience to sit down and watch some of the things we see unfold. But it's I not think interested. That's, no, it's, it's pushing an envelope. It's, it's not interested it's giving in us making us new. uncomfortable. And that's pushing mm, an envelope. Yeah. Not as much as maybe I would have liked it to make me uncomfortable. There's no doubt. And I'll give you an example where I agree with you. It's one scene where he says to her, what are your safe words? You're going to need them. And we're thinking, okay, yeah. man, this is going to be awkward. This is going right. to be uncomfortable. We're going to see some punishment. Not that I'm looking forward to it, but man, what is this movie going to do? What buttons is it going to push? The movie might say something. And you know what it does? Sam Taylor Johnson instead, she treats it as softcore as any softcore scene you've ever seen. She turns on the slow motion oh, and the, yeah, the R&B music. And it really does feel like between her convulsions of ecstasy, feel like, again, standard Hollywood fare, despite the fact that it's been set up as something much more. It's just not there in certain scenes like that. That's where it backs away. So, okay, since you seem to have been more on the movie's wavelength than me, let me ask you about the their last scene together in that room, which I I don't know, maybe we should be worried about spoilers, but I completely lost what happened of significance there. I knew what they wanted me to think is that things had turned significantly. But the only reason I knew that was because of the the blatant dialogue mm-hmm. that she's given and the, you know, the dramatic action that she takes. Did, was there something significant you found in why that was... A, a different for them and in their relationship, why, why some sort of line had been crossed there. No, because I think that it mostly comes down to, again, the fact that they put on the kid gloves for the sex scene itself. I don't think it's as blatant, for lack of a better word. I don't think it does give us what we probably need to really understand that something has shifted with them. But maybe it's because I just had enough of a reaction to and faith in Dakota Johnson and that character that when I saw her in the aftermath articulating her reaction to it, it carried me through it. It was enough for me. I guess I just go back to that performance, Josh. I'm with you, though, that I don't think that scene itself really did have the impact that it probably was going after. I guess I guess for me, it would have been one of those moments where that conflict that I'm talking about 
might have been illuminated, where where somehow mm-hmm. in the performance or, or in the filmmaking itself, uh, aside from the the sort of familiar generic elements that uh, that you mentioned, there isn't a lot of directorial vision here. No, uh, I thought that would also maybe have given me an idea of what the conflict again was in that scene. Well, hopefully, some film spotting listeners will see this movie if they haven't already, because I think we might have even more fun with some of the listener feedback as we That's do a get a chance very good chance to that. consider this movie further. That is Fifty Shades of Grey, which is out now in wide release. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. All right. From SNM Talk to Role Playing, a breathless edition of Massacre Theaters up next. Then we'll share a few thoughts on the Oscar-nominated animated film Song of the Sea. Stay with us. Um, I wrote this script with my old friend uh, Hugo, who, um, for whatever reasons, has recently joined the uh, alternative branch of our guild on the uh, on the East Coast. Um, but um, I'm very pleased to be here uh, instead um, uh, on this uh, soil of uh, Century City, um, which, um, formerly, as you know, the back lot of a great uh, one of the great cinema studios. Um, and now home to this this wonderful Hyatt um, and uh, and a large community of um, of uh, entertainment attorneys. Um. Depending on when you're listening to this, you should maybe be updating your Oscar ballot, or maybe you're regretting that you didn't. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Wes Anderson there accepting the Writers Guild Award for Best Original Screenplay for Josh's beloved The Grand Budapest Hotel. That was good to see. That award ceremony took place last Saturday night and to the relief of all of us, basically, it marked the end of the pre-Oscar awards season. Final Oscar voting ended this past Tuesday. Historically, the Writers Guild Awards have been a good, if eccentric, indicator of how things have shaken out at the Oscars. Last year, the original screenplay winner was Spike Jones for her. He then went on to win the Oscar. John Ridley's 12 Years a Slave, which did win the Oscar for Adapted Screenplay, somehow not eligible for the Writers Guild Award for reasons we won't even attempt to get into here on the show. Josh and I shared our Oscar picks on last week's show with the help of the great Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. You can find that show over at filmspotting.net or subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And assuming you're listening to this before Oscar night, there's still time to vote in our current poll question, which asks you simply, which Oscar outcome would you most like to see? You can vote now in that poll at filmspotting.net. Net. Lots of other good stuff over at filmspotting.net. You'll find, Josh, the full lineup and the reviews for our Satyajit Ray marathon. It continues next week with the fourth film in our five-part retrospective of the Indian auteur's work. And it's the first film in the series outside of 
Ray's celebrated Apu trilogy. I'm a little tentative about even venturing beyond yeah. that realm because it was just so rewarding. That's true. Can it yeah. possibly live up? I, we, I don't know. We both love the first three films, the movies that made up that trilogy. The one we're going to next is 1958's The Music Room. And to that point about how much we've enjoyed those first three movies, Josh, you've basically been forced to realign your top 10 favorite films of all time. That's true. Unlike the Opu trilogy, which sadly... We've noted this, not easy to get your hands on. The next three films in the marathon, along with The Music Room, they're pretty easily accessible. We've been posting these reviews as separate podcasts. Everybody seems to be enjoying that format so far. So not getting them on the radio, but if you want to dive into the work of Satyajit Ray, you can do that by visiting filmspotting.net and clicking on marathons. Also there, we have a link to information about the Film Spotting app. And we do a little bit of bonus content most weeks here on the show. Like to dive in, especially to some of your listener feedback. Sometimes we get into spoiler territory. If you've got the Film Spotting app for your iPhone or Windows 8 or Android, or if you don't and you want more info about it, again, filmspotting.net, click on apps. This week, we're going to get to the feedback to our discussion, Josh, of American Sniper. Three or four weeks ago here on the show, yeah. really great Thoughtful. We have to wait for some support on my That's end true. to come in. And finally, finally it <laughs> finally. came in. Some good stuff. Really detailed feedback that we will get to in that bonus content. Right now, though, it's time for Massacre Theater. We perform a scene badly, and you get a chance at winning a prize. Last time, we massacred this. Exhibit Q! A scale model of the entire mall! <laughs> X marks the scene of the crime. These arrows here show the exact position of the sun and the hour of the crime. Jupiter was aligned with Pluto. The moon was in the sun. Please save your questions until I'm through, Chuck. Well, when will that be? A long time we wait. We've been here for over three hours now, and I'm not sure if any of us can see what all this is supposed to mean. Supposed to mean? Supposed to mean? I think everyone here knows what this is supposed to mean. And you've gone over something again and again and again and again. Like I have. Certain questions get answered, others spring up. The mind plays tricks on you, you play tricks back. It's like you're unraveling a big cable knit sweater that someone keeps knitting and knitting and knitting and knitting. Knitting! 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 That was Paul Rubens, no, not Wallace Shawn, as Pee Wee Herman and Daryl Roach as Chuck in 1985's Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It was written by Paul Rubens with Michael Verhall and Phil Hartman. Yes, that Phil Hartman, who we saw quite a bit of in that SNL mm-hmm. 40th anniversary show. The director was Tim Burton. We massacred that scene a couple weeks back on episode 524, The Tie-Ins. Our top five that week was rescue scenes, of course, rescuing that bike. And we reviewed Jupiter Ascending on that show. That scene you just heard includes a Jupiter reference. Plus, you could go characters with really annoying voices like Pee Wee Herman, Mr. I Swallowed a Carton of Cigarettes. Not the cigarettes, the actual carton (laughs) red name from Jupiter Ascending. Yes, and it's still in there. (laughs) Well done, Josh. A little bit of early massacre theater. Just warming up. Jake Meltzer in Brooklyn, New York, wrote in, in a distinguished group of Josh Larson performances, very, very distinguished, his Pee Wee Herman should be inducted into the Pantheon. Someone who's not so sure, Mariusz Garska from Krakow, Poland, longtime listener, says the Pee Wee impersonation shifted from a pretty decent Wallace Shawn in the first bit into a guy holding his nose while speaking for no reason at the end. 
absolutely loved it. Marius, There's what, that. What you don't know is I was holding my nose the whole time. So, yeah. <laughs> well, Marius wasn't the only listener to make the Wallace Shawn connection. Many <laughs> listeners did. That a lot. And the whole time you were holding your nose and doing your Pee Wee Herman, I was trying to think of the voice that it you really place sounded it. like couldn't place it, but inconceivable, surely, was it. And it was one not of our in my head, just so you know. Okay, I well, wasn't thinking Wallace Shawn at all. One of our listeners, the very talented Greg Nemec, who does our marathon artwork, yep. the various awards graphics, if you go to our marathons page, he designed the poster. He did a little Photoshop magic and put Wallace Shawn's head on Pee-wee Herman oh, no. from Pee-wee's oh, Big no. Adventure. So we'll link to that in the we'll show notes. We'll link to that monstrosity. That's the Josh Larson version of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. My new avatar. Andy Moss also wrote in from London. That was Pee-wee's Big Adventure. The only reason I knew that was I literally last night saw it for the first time after spending years trying to track down the DVD. It's impossible to get in the UK for some reason. My excitement at seeing Tim Burton's first film was very quickly tempered when it quickly became apparent that Pee-wee Herman was the most irritating character in movie history probably in history period. The only way I could make it through was to drink most of a bottle of wine, and even then it was touch and go. So I had a bit of a sore head this morning, but hoped that a walk to work and a bit of film spotting would sort me out. And then, this was the first thing I heard, I was very conflicted between wanting to drive nails through my head and being pleased I could name that film. I didn't even need the Rubens clue. Yeah, that's true. We did put a clue in there where we changed the peewee character's name to Ruben, and I think that conflicted feeling, that's one a lot of our listeners have. About when they P- hear the show, oh, being, I thought you were saying about pleased with various things, but also wanting to drive nails Just through their head. The show in general, huh? Zach Santucci says you mentioned there were two connections. The obvious being the rescue scene from Pee Wee connecting to your top five. Although, are you considering the great pet store fire rescue or the <laughs> off the rails rescue of Pee Wee's bike from the Hollywood backlot that incorporates Twisted Sister, Santa Claus, and Godzilla? I've forgotten. Obviously the latter. <laughs> the second one wasn't as obvious. Is it the connection of Pee-wee to SpongeBob, an androgynous bow-tie sporting and high-pitched grown child who caters to kids and has had two big screen appearances, mm. or the double reference to Pee-wee director Tim Burton during the discussion of James Cameron's Aliens and the Rescue Top 5 and in the Ed Wood clip that introduced the segment? So, so many clues. Yeah, Sam... Little production help there, likes to throw in some Massacre Theater connections if he can. So you heard Ed Wood coming into it. And it is true. Didn't even think about it. But I mentioned 1989's Batman when I was talking about aliens in those rescue scenes. So connections did abound. And smart listeners like Zach always seem to find them. Josh, not quite as brimming as our previous Massacre Theater, but the hat is definitely full. Reach in. Pick out this week's winner. The winner is Matt Peterson, not too far away from Chicago here in Wheaton, Illinois. Congratulations, Matt. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting t-shirt. Do we go right into the sex? I need some more film. Is that all right? You, you don't need a rehearsal? No, it's okay. I can do it. Okay. Then we'll shoot the rehearsal. All right. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. We're not going to give you any connections, not any hints. I don't think you'll need them. I guess I will say this, though. It's not as well-known a film as something like Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I'd say this was a True. little bit more of an art house film. So we might see fewer entries to this massacre theater. And this is a scene between a man and a woman. Normally, I would take on the female part. Or even if it was two men, I would, I would seem to always the, take on the female, female part. part. Yes. It's just my go-to voice. But I refuse to be typecast here. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to play the man in this scene. I'm wow. I'm, I'm taking on a you're, dominant role you're really <laughs> behind the board here. This Dakota Johnson performance oh, yeah. has gone to your head. It has. <laughs> so are you ready? I guess I don't have a choice. No, you don't. <laughs> I started off. You're going to give me the action. And action. I have a 
part-time paralegal. All I need is a typist who can get to work on time and answer the phone. I can do that. We only use typewriters here, not computers. That's fine. Sorry. Say it again. I was, you're I not was, used to this workload, I was so blown Adam. away by your you're submissiveness. Not, not. <laughs> it just lulled me to sleep. All right. That's fine. It's very dull work. I like dull work. There's something about you. You're closed, tight, a wall. I know. Do you ever loosen up? I don't know. And <laughs> scene, I believe you. I believe that you Thank don't you. know. I'm, I'm thoroughly confused. <laughs> if you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, March 2nd. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. If the film is by Wes Anderson, then it will make his list. Or from Pixar or Disney, well, you get the gist. But heavy-handed messages really aren't his thing. Time for Larson Recommends on Film Spotting. The Oscars, of course, this Sunday night. And while the Lego movie did not get a nomination for Best Animated Feature, a Why movie... Why keep bringing that up? Yeah, I know, that most of us hadn't really been aware of. At least I think that's fair. It was new to me when I saw it on the list of nominations. Song of the Sea did get a nomination, and it's opening here in Chicago this weekend. It's playing at the Music Box. Josh, you've seen Song of the Sea. After seeing it, how do you feel about the fact that it got that Oscar nomination. Yeah, I think it's deserving. I think in in our bonus content for the Oscar show we did last week with Michael, I talked about how I saw maybe 10 animated films from last year. So, you know, who am I? among those, it's one of my favorites. Uh, I was looking forward to it. I'm a big fan of The Secret of Kells, and it's the same director here, Tom Moore. This is a, a family film, an animated film like so many in the way that it's rooted in grief, think about all of the movies that begin with some sort of death uh, to a character, animated films. But the difference here is it's not just you know, grief as an instigating action. This thing's really soaked in it. There's an opening phrase, a line that says, the world is full of more weeping than you can understand. And man, does this movie embrace it. Now, it, it's also really beautiful. Your kids aren't going to be crying their eyes out or traumatized. No, but it is rooted in things like, um, well... It's based on the Celtic legends of Selkies, where seals who become humans, and also this tale of a king who's so broken by grief that he cries out an entire sea. So that's sort of the background. And then the contemporary story is about a brother and sister who live with their father in a lighthouse. The father's mourning his own loss, and the little girl is mute, and the brother wonders, is this because she's a Selkie? So it it sort of goes on from there. Oh, you look wet. And tired, human child. Maka? I am she. Really? The Owl Witch? From the stories? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no. Those stories always paint me as the bad one. But I'm not so terrible, you know. I'm just trying to help everyone. Yeah. Well, what's in all these jars, then? Oh, just nasty things, you know. Nobody needs them. I know you have my sister. Let her go! No, no, no. The selkie child is safe and sound. 
Don't you worry. Uh, and I just really love the tone of this film, uh, the the animation, the style. What what Tom Moore likes to do, it's very geometric how he works with uh, different shapes on the screen. They're almost, uh, in a sense, puzzle pieces. And he likes to put some sort of circular image at the center and then have other things moving around it. Um, that's just really beautiful to look at. And so there's a lot more of that here. And again, this motif of this father being this sad figure related to the king, you will notice that an island has the shape of this giant king, one of the islands. And then that's repeated again when the father, say, is hunched over at a pub. Just so much intricacy, visual intricacy in this film that um, really does make it stand out as a lovely animated piece of work. Mm-hmm. It turns out that not only can Josh recommend it, Adam can recommend it. Yeah, you did, also, you did see this, I'm too. also a fan of this movie. I did see this film after you and was able to watch it with my kids, and I heartily recommend it as well. Good. I can also recommend one other movie, and maybe this is fitting, Josh, that you mentioned Crying Your Eyes Out, because a movie that I think might provoke a similar reaction is a movie I just saw that opened here in Chicago last weekend. It's called Matt Shepard is a Friend of Mine. It's a documentary about... Matthew Shepard, who hopefully many of us remember was the student from the University of Wyoming, the gay student who was tortured, brutally beaten, and left for dead near Laramie, Wyoming back in 1998, and he did eventually die six days later, and he became this symbol of hate crimes. And one of the things this movie accomplishes is taking this symbol, who I only know from those TV stories and the little bits and pieces I picked up from the news and just what was going on culturally back in 1998, and it makes him a flesh and blood character. It's there in the title of the movie. Matt Shepard is a friend of mine. The fact that it's Matt and not Matthew. We always heard him referred yeah. to as Matthew Shepard, right? This is Matt. That's who he was to these people, and he was their friend. And the movie was made by a friend of his, Michelle Josu who knew him from when they were students together at a school overseas. And this is a movie, Josh, in terms of a documentary form that I would show people as a great model in terms of how to make a personal documentary. It's not a movie where the documentarian is just standing back. She's on camera at times. It's her voiceover, as it should be, because... As the title says, Matt Shepard was a friend of hers, and that's what she's trying to do is sort of get at this enigma of who this person really was, because even the people who knew him weren't completely sure. And that's one of the things I really respect about the movie is that I think Josu recognizes the inability of this movie to tell the complete story of Matt Shepard, largely because his story was incomplete. And the way she interjects herself into it is that model in terms of just enough personal insight and personal reflection and personal emotion to give it a layer that this movie needs and give us something that we can really latch onto. We're sort of following her journey through this story and through his past as well. But never is it a case where you feel like she's imposing herself too much, that it becomes about her instead of being about Matt. It's always in service of getting at this this symbol and and trying to humanize him. And the movie really does succeed in that. So I wanted to bring it up here, not only because it is playing here in Chicago and throughout the month of February, it's rolling out to 12 cities. I know it's in New York and LA, but I also want to get it like the Duke of Burgundy. I want to qualify it for 2015 Golden Brick candidacy. Duly noted. If you want to know more about Matt Shepard is a friend of mine, you can find that information at the official website, Matt Shepard is a friend of mine.com. Well, the Matt Shepard doc, Song of the Sea, these are movies 
movies we actively sought out. No one really chooses to see a movie like Marmaduke, yet sometimes movies that look like dogs turn out to be pretty good. (laughs) Well played, Mr. Larson. Our lists of the top five movies we had to review are next. Spoiler, Marmaduke doesn't make the cut. Stay with us. artist this week, Nashville-based Nikki Lane from her 2014 album All or Nothing, produced by the Black Keys, Dan Auerbach. Nikki has a lot of tour dates right now on her schedule in Cincinnati on Friday, February 20th. Then she's playing a few nights during the March South by Southwest Festival in Austin, then on to Athens, Georgia, Charlton, South Carolina, and Washington, D.C. in late March, if you like what you're hearing here on the show. Josh, I went to the Film Spotting P.O. Box over the weekend. We'll get mm-hmm. to donations in a second, but we got another type of donation. We got some gifts in the Film Spotting P.O. Box, and I wanted to mention the senders now briefly, including Alberto Zambenedetti. That's a great name. It is. Th- that's worthy of Fifty Shades of Grey character. <laughs> Alberto has a great title, too. He's Visiting Assistant Professor of Cinema Studies and Andrew W. Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow at Oberlin College. I believe Christian Gray studied under him. <laughs> I'm sure he did. Alberto sent us a copy of his book, World Film Locations in Florence, and wrote us this note. It is a book, you might imagine, that talks about the different films that were shot on location in Florence, Italy. Alberto writes, I began listening to Film Spotting Original Recipe after my good friend Matt Singer and his amazing co-host Allison Wilmore took over SVU in 2012. Since then, your inspiring and insightful conversations have become an integral part of my life as film scholar and teacher. Well, thank you, Alberto. Thank you, indeed. We also got a nice gift, Josh, from our good buddy, Nigel Smith in uh-huh. Tufnell Park, London. Every time we read any feedback from him, I always reference Spinal Tap and Nigel and Tufnell Park. I don't know that I've ever mentioned, do you know that I was so in love with Spinal Tap when I was in high school that I had a cat named Nigel? I thought you were going to say Tufnell. Nope. We had a family cat named Nigel. So that's my random Kempinar family aside for the week. Nigel wrote us this, to celebrate the return of the marathons, I thought you'd like these books I saw recently in a secondhand shop. The bag is obviously for Adam. So what he's referencing is we got two books, and now I'm completely drawing a blank on the exact title, but it's Setujit Ray's autobiography Very nice. about the making of the Apu films. I think it's called My Life with Apu. So he sent us that. He also sent us Robert Brasson's Notes on the Cinematographer. 
Very nice. And then there was a bag, the kind of bag like you might take to the grocery store and use instead of a sack that just says, never let me go on it. Wow. And it looks like it looks like it's actually swag like from the movie, but I don't know why they would have made that as swag. Never let me go gift bag. Yeah. I'm gonna start carrying all my film spotting materials in it. You take the bag, I'll take the books. (laughs) I don't know if that's fair. But here's what's funny. Just a few days before I went to the P.O. box, I came across on Amazon that book. And since we were loving these films so much, I actually I ordered copies for both of us. Wow. Yeah. They haven't arrived yet. So So now what are you going to do? I don't know. We'll give it to Sam. There we go. There you go. Sam Van Hogren gets a little bit of Nigel's gift as well. So thank you to Alberto and thank you, Nigel. And thank you to all of our donors we want to single out this week, including brand new donor Mark in Norcross, Georgia, and Silver Club donors Chris in St. Louis, Missouri, who says, I got to pay the dealer, Simon in San Diego, California, and Becca Kaplan, a former Jersey girl, now in Mainz, Germany. So I finally get to say that I'm finally paying the dealer. I've been a longtime listener, but my poor student lifestyle has limited my contributions. In honor of officially earning my master's degree in film studies this January, I've decided to make a small contribution to such an inspiring podcast. I was a scared communications undergrad in Philadelphia when I began listening to you guys, hoping to cram in all the knowledge and deep cinematic ideas I could before going over to London to start studying film. You guys are the best, especially now that I'm in Germany and am dependent on your reviews while waiting months for movies to finally be released over here. I also want to ask you to plug my boyfriend's iPhone iPad app. I believe it's really relevant to your listeners and it's free, so I'm not asking them to buy anything, I swear. The app is called Cheap Charts, and it's intended to help you save money when buying, renting iTunes movies and TV series, as well as music and audiobooks. I wasn't aware before I heard of the app, but iTunes prices can change dramatically. Cheap Charts allows you to set notifications for favorite artists, genres, films, etc., and get an immediate notification when the price drops so you don't miss out along with other money-saving features. I actually was recently able to rent Frank for 99 cents because of the app. So if you could drop a line about the app on your show or in your show notes, I would really appreciate it, and I think the listeners would too. Plus, it's free and has no in-app advertisements, so it costs downloaders nothing. Thanks, guys. Can't wait for more shows. Well, thanks for the kind words there, Becca, and consider it dropped on the show. We'll also put it in the show notes. You make a generous donation like that, and you mention a link that does seem relevant to our listeners, and we will be happy to mention it here on the show. We go now to a new $5 a month subscriber, and this one, Josh, I'm going to read it. It's really going to test my ability to pronounce anything French, starting with the name Elon in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I discovered your podcast recently just as I was reaching the end of the semester and needed something to keep me going. I'm a visual arts student, and long days alone in the studio can often seem endless. Your insightful and always entertaining commentary has gotten me through hours of painting and printmaking, and I thought it was about time I paid the dealer. I'd also like to take this opportunity and encourage you to seek out Mommy, the new Xavier Dolan movie. It was my favorite film of 2014, and I think the best Quebecois movie since On Sunday. I would love to hear your thoughts. I've always been a fan of Dolan from I Killed My Mother to to Lawrence anyways, but this one stayed with me long after I walked out of the theater. Taking the words of David Barry from the National Post as a movie, Mommy is a very similar thing to its namesake's jewelry, a flashy, scary, gorgeous little piece of home, a shiny bauble that still manages to hang very close to the heart. It succeeds because it manages to fill every frame with the stuff of life, suffuse every scene with the wonderful horror of being. Not to mention, the director is only 25 years old with five feature films and the Cannes Jury Prize already under his belt, enough to make the rest of us feel like underachievers. I think you did fine with the pronunciation. Oh, well, how would you know? (laughs) How would you know? Thank you, Josh. I'll take it nevertheless. And I just want to note for the record that... I read this email and I was all in on talking about 
the Dolan film, Mommy, which was the co-winner of the Cannes Prize this past year. But someone else, someone else and a certain co-producer, Sam Van Halgren, were insistent on talking about Fifty Shades of Grey. And aren't you glad, considering how much you enjoyed it? Well, yeah, actually, I guess I am. So it nice to throw that you, back Adam. on me, Josh. <laughs> Thanks to all of our monthly donors and everyone else who contributed this past week and every week. We really do appreciate every bit of support that we get. Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hello there, listeners over at the Film Spotting Mothership. Allison Wilmore here from the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit podcast. And in our latest episode, Matt Singer and I go in search of father figures in a brutal Texas landscape as we review David Gordon Green's Joe, starring Nicolas Cage. And inspired by Joe, we'll be recommending some other films set in the American South, all available to rent or stream at home right now. You can find the podcast on iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Hi, this is Matthew Vaughn. I am the director of Stardust, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Thanks, Woody. I feel really safe with you. I noticed that. And if you ever lay your head on my back again when you're riding, bitch, I'll throw you in the traffic. I, I was just trying to keep the wind off my face. I felt you smell my neck. Guys, could we? Did you smell that man's neck? His cologne is fantastic. It's musky with a, an oaky finish. Like a lawyer cowboy. Well, they say there's a first time for everything. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh, and that first is a clip from the comedy classic Wild Hogs <laughs> being played on Film Spotting. Ten years never happened. I'm not sure it's ever even I been referenced. I just love hearing you say that. It, it just sounds so good. Wild Hogs, Josh. <laughs> just for you. Why don't you explain to our listeners what our top five topic is and why we're playing a clip from Wild Hogs. And what it's not, maybe, yes. is what, I, what I'm doing here. So... When this was proposed by Sam, this top five movies that we had to review to tie in with Fifty Shades of Grey, which we were sort of reluctantly going to see, my mind immediately went to my daily newspaper reviewing days because then I had to go see every major release. Uh, no matter what came out that weekend, I had to cover it. So Wild Hogs would have been one of those. The, the 2007, we're going back to here midlife crisis comedy Travolta. It delivers on the, this horrifying promise. Just imagine this if you've forgotten. John Travolta, Tim Allen, and Martin Lawrence all appearing in the same movie. <laughs> I mean, that's just yeah. that's just a threat that should not be delivered on. They did, and it was brutal. It was? It was brutal. Okay. <laughs> we like to go positive, though, yes. right, on the show. So we're switching it over. We had we're to switching review. it over a little bit. And um, not going to talk about Wild Hogs, not going to talk about, say, the Dukes of Hazard. Uh, something else I had to see. The Country Bears, the list goes on and on and on. <laughs> Instead, we're going to go with movies that we actually ended up enjoying, or at least we certainly enjoyed them far more than we thought we would. I don't know about you. I don't have many classics on this list, but I have films that I, the way I think about it is, you know, nice little surprises. If you're in the mood for something different, some of these might be movies that maybe you saw and enjoyed and completely forgot, mm -hmm. or you're just looking for something lighter that'll, you know, you you can have fun with for hmm. a little bit. A couple of mine are like that. Okay. I think we're 
covering similar territory here. We approached it the same way, though, because of your suburban newspaper background. I think this was probably a little bit easier for you to come up with titles. It was harder for me because my newspaper days as a grad student for a couple of years didn't cover as much ground, and I was still writing one review. I got to pick the one good movie, hopefully, that was playing in Iowa City that weekend. So it was slim pickings, but nevertheless, I did have some choice in it. The difficulty comes from the fact that over the course of 10 years of doing this show, we only talk about the films we want to review. Right. These are movies that we are genuinely interested in talking about, and it is the benefit of reviewing only one new movie a week. I didn't want these, Josh, even though surprise is a term that applies to these. I didn't want my picks just to be surprises, movies that you had low expectations for that ended up being pretty good. I'll give you an example. You mentioned SNL earlier in the show and SNL 40. I didn't see much of it, but shame on everyone Sunday night filling up my Twitter timeline with comments about how Miley Cyrus killed it (laughs) covering 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Being better than you thought she'd be does not equal killing it. It doesn't. Yes, Miley Cyrus can actually (laughs) hold a note. She can hold a note. I've been waiting to rant about this all week, Josh. Bear with me. How did we get here? (laughs) I've been holding this in all week. But having better pipes than Ariana Grande, that doesn't mean you're good. And it doesn't mean she didn't offer up. I didn't realize she had such a big voice. It's just overly guttural. It's faux soul blues. It was an impersonation. And it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. It was better than expected. It didn't sound like Paul Simon to me. (laughs) Not an impersonation of Paul Simon, of Soul Blues. Okay. <laughs> so, these for me, Josh, are you, all cases. Do you have that out of your system? I, I feel or am I going to so hear more better. about Miley I've Cyrus when we're done that. recording? No, I have nothing more in my notes. Okay, but good. For me, my top five, all cases where I had no intention to see the movie when I heard about it, almost certainly would not have seen it if there had been any better options, and then I was grateful to have seen it. And the other thing that made it a little bit more complicated is that I excluded movies like 21 Jump Street, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, that we made the decision to review after they were getting good critical buzz. So it really did narrow down my choices for me, which is sometimes a good thing, sometimes a bad thing. Let's jump in. What's your number five? So at number five, I have Hannah Montana, the movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. Just More try, Miley. Just trying to anger you. Uh, no, I have She's the Man, actually, which is a 2006. A lot of these, I'm just going to get a blank stare from you. I'm already prepared I'm for this. I'm in shock. Amanda Bynes vehicle. Remember there yes. was a time when Amanda Bynes had movies built around her. She's a high school soccer player here who goes undercover as her twin brother to just wait at him to prove her athletic skills against the boys. Now, believe it or not, this is a little bit of an absurdist riff on Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. See? See? I'm glad I've got your attention back. <laughs> you, yeah, <laughs> you you're starting to come, You're yeah. starting to come back into focus. And it, it works really well, largely because Bynes was funny. She had this exasperated sense of humor, really nice comic timing. Uh, she was a very funny performer. And this is also going to intrigue you, Adam. Bynes romantic interest in the film, who she tries to woo while she's disguised as a man, played by Channing Tatum. No kidding. No kidding. <laughs> oh, my God, you're bleeding. Are you okay? Um. <clears throat> Suck it up. Be a man. And rub some dirt in it. Okay, I'll rub some dirt on it. So, what happened? Now, Bynes went on to appear in the Hairspray remake and the contemporary Snow White comedy, Sydney White, but she's had a rough go in recent years, run-ins with the law, hospitalizations. It's turned into a sad story, but for a sense of what propelled her to stardom for a little while there, if you're up for something, you know, a little lighter, but still smart, fun, check out She's the Man. 
Put it on your list, Adam. I liked it better when it was called Just One of the Guys from the 80s, but fine if you want to go with Amanda Bynes. I also have to say, you lied to me. You lied to our entire audience. You said no classics. This was number 37 on the 2012 Sight and Sound list, I'm pretty sure. That's true. So I forgot about that. How dare you, Josh? <laughs> well, for me, this is what I'm calling, of course, the Lake House Memorial List, because that would be the all-time film spotting movie. There? No, it'd be the all-time film spotting movie that I only saw because there was nothing better to discuss, and I kind of loved it. So the Lake House Memorial List, my number five is Peyton Reed's The Breakup, a movie from 2006, 2007-ish, Vince Vaughn, Jennifer Aniston. Oh, vague memories. As a couple who they, well, they break up. And most of the movie is about them. I think I might have liked up. this. I hope you did, Josh. <laughs> that would be that would be wonderful. And I think that here, Peyton Reed, one of these directors, everyone knows him now because of Ant-Man coming out and he replaced Edgar Wright on that film. And some people were horrified at that. Look, I love Edgar Wright and I'd probably prefer to see his Ant-Man, but Peyton Reed, based on Bring It On, which I've seen, and Down With Love, which I haven't seen, but I know how he sort of plays with familiar genres and adds a new spin on them. That makes me interested in seeing what he's going to do with that film starring Paul Rudd. In The Breakup, what he's doing in terms of the genre here is he's taking the romantic comedy, and instead of giving us two characters who they meet, and they've got all these obstacles that they have to overcome— but they eventually do overcome them. Instead, what he gives us is a case where they're in love at the beginning of the film, and then the struggle is actually then giving in to those forces conspiring against them, which is really themselves and their own personalities and their own identities that are in conflict. And I think this is a case where, I remember seeing the preview for it, and this is going to come up with at least one more of my picks, and they were selling it hard as this goofy, raunchy, just silly romantic comedy. And then you watch the film, and... It's pretty bleak. Yeah, it's, it's not pretty that. dark. It really is about these two people just constantly at each other's throats and going through something really tough. And the kind of scenes they emphasize, the broader comedic scenes that are in the trailer, really isn't what the movie is about at all. And I remember being impressed with Jennifer Aniston's performance, one of the first times I'd seen her in a movie, if not the first post-Friends. And also Vince Vaughn, who some of his performances leading up to this one He's someone I always liked going back to Swingers, and then I think that personality, that persona on screen just became grating, frankly. And I felt like in the breakup, he was actually pretty subdued, and that worked in his favor. So that's my number five. Yeah, I, I do remember that, and it is infinitely more real than, than the average romantic comedy, if you can even call it that. And I just checked. I happened, I actually gave it three and a half out of four stars, Love so I it. liked it quite a bit. <laughs> nice. Nice pick. Number four for me is Sex and the City. Wow, I hated this movie. The feature film. Hated it. <laughs> Now, going in, I mean, aside from having a high school crush on Honeymoon in Vegas era, Sarah Jessica Parker, well, why would I have wanted anything to do with this movie? Mm -hmm. It's the 2008, this came out, the adaptation of the HBO series. I mean, that was mostly about the relationship travails of well-off Manhattan women. Now, in prep for it, doing my due diligence, I did watch a number of episodes of the show, and they weren't encouraging. I just found them exceedingly shallow. See, I watched a fair number of those on <sighs> HBO, and I didn't mind the series. Exact opposite experience. Exact opposite for me. And actually, it reminds me of how I experienced South Park to a degree. I mean, as weekly episodes, both of those I found to be 
grading, to use your word, repetitive, but as concentrated movie experiences, um, they were much more potent of an experience. And in the case of Sex and the City, I feel like the filmmakers were able to zero in on what was actually good about that whole phenomenon. First of all, they took hold of the fact that this was a Hollywood narrative told completely from the female perspective. And they took advantage of the sexual empowerment narrative that's part of that. It also became a mature consideration of the emotions the women's sex lives involved. Also emphasize something. I mean, all of this There's was so also. rare. There's I have a couple more also's here. <laughs> How about the paramount importance of female friendship in a woman's life? I mean, the movie put that at the forefront, especially, and this stands apart from the romantic comedies we get, for a woman who can't count on the lasting happiness from a man. One of the pictures endearing qualities, too, which is tied to the breakup, is its aversion to happily ever afters. This is it almost plays like an epilogue to your standard Hollywood romantic comedy in in a very similar way. So, boy, sounds like you're not with me. So let me lay this on you, too. I even liked Sex and the City, too. Oh, I didn't even see it. I hated Sex and the City one so much. Look back at my star rating. If you're going to throw those out, one and a half stars for Sex and the City. Did you do it on the show? You guys yeah. review? Yeah, no, we had a review on the show. Wow. Yeah, no, not a fan. Speaking of qualities being an aversion to Hollywood endings, another one of the strengths of Fifty Shades of Grey, Josh Larson. Well, only because they're setting up so, two more films. Why do you have to go there? That's not an aversion. Why do you have to go there? That's a marketing tactic. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> My number four pick is a movie that has come up in one or two top fives over the years, and it's the 2007 Stephen King adaptation the Mist mm. from Frank Darabont. This is that movie where there's a freak storm and somehow a bunch of people get trapped at a grocery store with these bloodthirsty creatures swarming around outside. And then it becomes much more about the bloodthirsty creatures inside the grocery store. Thomas Jane, Marsha Gay Harden in this movie. And I remember I was looking back at my notes here, Josh, and a couple of the things I jotted down are like most good horror movies, there are a lot of allegorical implications. And this is sort of post 9-11 fear-mongering. There are elements where you can't help but draw parallels to the war in Iraq. And I like the way it was shot in a documentary style, at least in that it's handheld, but it's even subtle in the way it does that. So it works just as this kind of B-movie, or as I called it, a B-plus movie. You know, there are those elements there of this generic horror film, but I think it does enough interesting things with it and becomes this kind of cultural and political satire that that was enough for me to to sink my teeth into beyond just finding it entertaining. The other thing about it is the ending of the film, which I won't get into here, but I was so disappointed with it. And I chalked that up to the movie trying to pull the rug out from under me, basically trying to pull the rug out from under the audience and it being too dark and too cynical. The more I think about it, and I haven't revisited the film, I wonder if that was me trying to come up with an excuse for being so bothered by the ending. And maybe it's actually the right ending for that movie, even though it feels overly melodramatic. It becomes almost one that's more about coincidence than anything else. That's where you feel like you've been betrayed a little bit. But who knows? Maybe it's just because I was so caught up in the story and caught up in the characters that when things didn't work out quite as happily as I would have wanted to, then I was disappointed with it. It's something I'd like to go back and revisit. What's the matter with you? Don't you believe in God? No one's interfered with you. All we're asking for is the same privilege. You heard him. It is these people who brought this upon us. They, people who refuse to bend to the will of God and claim it privilege. 
sinners and pride. Yes, haughty, privileged. They mock us, they mock our, our God, our faith, our values, our very lifestyle. They mock our humility and our piousness. They piss on us and laugh. It's from them. The blood of human sacrifice must come from them. I certainly need to revisit that one because I know many people hold it in high esteem. I wasn't as taken by it. I remember finding the commentary a little ham-fisted, actually, for Mm -hmm. a horror film. So, um, yeah, I'd like to watch that one again. All right. My number three is Roll Bounce. Now, Sex and the City, I would have actively avoided if I could have, but I really had no feelings at all about this pick, Roll Bounce, which made its delightfulness all the more of a treat. Just had no expectations going in. It's from 2005, directed by Malcolm D. Lee. Just a coming-of-age story about a roller rink teen and his buddies in 1978 Chicago. The teen is played by, at the time, a sweetly gawky Bow Wow. I think I think Bow Wow is still active, but, Maybe. Uh, but I remember him in Roll Bounce. There's nothing revolutionary here, uh, but it does reveal what a perfect pairing, obvious pairing, but perfect, of subject and medium, roller skating and film can be. I mean, it's a celebration of movement in an art form defined by movement. And Lee's roving camera, he, he makes the most of that. It's a real experience. It's this sort of kinetic experience, even though it's telling this familiar story. So for a movie I probably wouldn't have made time for, it, it made a real impact on me. It, the whole movie just coasts on this joy, uh, very genial and feel good in a good way. Those those can work sometimes and mm. Roll Bounce does. Roll Bounce is one I need to see. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're sharing the top five movies we had to review. Movies that basically we only saw because of some sense of obligation, nothing better to talk about that week on the show or writing for the newspaper at the time. And then we ended up being pleasantly surprised. My number three is a movie I consistently slagged on the show every time it would come up just in terms of the marketing and the trailer for the film. And then I had to watch it, and that movie is the 2009 film Brothers, directed by Jim Sheridan. Do you remember seeing this movie, Jake Gyllenhaal, Natalie Portman, Tobey Maguire? Yes. Is it ringing a bell? Yes. I didn't see it. You didn't see it? No. See? There you go. You couldn't even be brought to see it, Josh. But we did discuss it here on the show. This is the movie that stars Maguire as a Marine in Afghanistan who is reported to be dead, and his wife, Natalie Portman, is back at home. And his brother, Jake Gyllenhaal, is also back at home, and they seem to develop some kind of romantic spark, which obviously is a little bit awkward when you're canoodling with your dead husband's brother. Well, things get even more complicated when the dead husband turns out not to be dead. So that is what the movie gives you, and that's what the movie gives you in the trailer, which seems like the entire film, basically. And I remember just feeling like there's not going to be anything here for me to discover. It's going to be this emotionally wrought, overly melodramatic movie. And then what you find is I should have given Jim Sheridan, the guy who made In America, one of my all-time favorite movies, the benefit of the doubt that the trailer was overselling the melodrama, amping up the conflict there to try to sell this movie, because what it is is a much more subtle character drama. The real sparks don't fly until the end of the film. I described it as a small domestic drama that plays almost like a short story translated to the screen. And I think it's very effective. I think it's very effective, too, in large part because of the performances. Never been a big Natalie Portman fan. I thought she was very good here in managing, despite the fact that she always comes off as a little bit waifish, to project a sense of weariness that really kind of 
belied her age, if you will. And Gyllenhaal, it's funny, Josh, no matter how many times I go back to old reviews that mention Jake Gyllenhaal, it constantly seems that I'm saying, well, I'm not really a fan of his, but he's good here. (laughs) At what point do I finally need to just say, well, I finally have just said it. Nightcrawler. I'm a fan. No, it was even before that. I think it might have been Source Code, which I really liked in the Duncan Jones movie, where I said, no, he's actually a good actor. And you know what? That could have been my failing as a critic to not see that earlier. It could also be that he has actually evolved into a pretty good actor and is also choosing better material. And here he's a real presence on screen. He's one of those characters who seems kind of caught between these roles where he's the charismatic brother who everyone seems to like to be around, but you easily kind of see him falling back into his old patterns and being kind of the wrong guy, the black sheep of the family, if you will. So I like the performances a lot. I like the little nuances of the character interplay that Sheridan rings out of the script. It's a good film. One, like all of these, I'd love to go back and make time to revisit. All right, my number two is probably the closest comparison to 50 Shades of Grey on my list, actually. It's it's the movie that on the surface seemed to be nothing more than softcore titillation for the multiplex crowd. Unfaithful from 2002. Hmm. And and here's why you would have thought Can't that. Can't go wrong with Diane Lane. Well, <laughs> that's one reason you might have thought that going in. Also, it's directed by Adrian Lyne, made Flashdance, Nine and a Half Weeks, Fatal Traction, Indecent Proposal. You see where I'm going here. Lane stars with Richard Gere. They're a couple who's facing the repercussions of her infidelity. Now, make no mistake. It's still titillation. It does not skimp on the sex scenes between Lane and Olivier Martinez as the other man. What I didn't expect, though, was the subtlety that was here, especially in the performances. I mean, Lane is especially good. And I'm just thinking about this now and going back to Fifty Shades of Grey and the performance of Dakota Johnson. Mm-hmm. And you talked about seeing that conflict. There is a scene. Did you see Unfaithful? I did. That scene where she's on the train. On the train. And the close up. Everything I wanted to see out of Johnson is there where she's got she's remembering where she just came from, the tryst. And, you know, she's she's not entirely guilty about it. But at the same time, she allows guilt to seep in and and so much conflict in that scene. It's a great performance. Line also brings just a couple of subtle touches here and there. I mean, there's that early shot of a kid's bike being blown over by the wind, foreshadowing this domestic upheaval, and a wonderfully ambiguous final shot that ends things on this Hitchcockian note. And actually, this film is based on one by Claude Chabral, whose mysteries could rival Hitchcock. So there's very much that sort of flavor going on. So you could actually call Unfaithful classy in its own way. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a pretty good film. I'm with you on Unfaithful. My number two is a little movie you might have heard of, Josh, called Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Hmm. I don't know if you've picked this up over the years of doing the show with me, but I'm not a big fantasy guy. Yeah. I'm more and more amazed every day that we actually... (laughs) Did the first Hobbit film as a review. Good I don't point. know how that Talk happened. about movies we had to review. <laughs> exactly. I think it's because there was nothing better that week, which is kind of hard for me to consider in retrospect. But Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, that's the fifth movie in the series. And I disliked the first two Harry Potter movies, which were the only two I had seen up until the fifth one came out. I had no investment in the series, wasn't a reader of the book. So after the first two movies, which I remember seeing at least the first one only because... I had to review it. I wrote a newspaper review of that film. I just decided I'm done with it. I don't need to see any of these films. And the fact that Alfonso Cuaron directed the third one wasn't enough for me to force me to go see that. So are you saying you went, you saw the first two and then skipped to the fifth? Sort of. With the fifth one coming out, I watched three and four to prep 
for number five, but I wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for having to review number five, the one here directed by David Yates. And I was listening back to my review of Order of the Phoenix, and a couple of things I brought up were Daniel Radcliffe finding him really through the first four movies not that compelling on screen as an actor, but also not finding the Harry Potter character that compelling on screen. And here, finally, in Order of the Phoenix, in this story where back at Hogwarts you have Dolores Umbridge played wonderfully by Imelda Staunton. She comes in and she's really this dictatorial presence and he ends up fighting back against the authority and is not only fighting back, but teaching other kids how to use their magic and becomes a real leader. This is where we finally see Harry Potter, the character, become an active, interesting character for me. I think that was one of the big selling points. Staunton being this really great villain was another selling point for me. And maybe because of my lack of fascination generally with fantasy, it's fitting that this movie brought me in, brought me back to the Harry Potter series because of the way it was grounded in some reality. The nods to fascism, the Animal Farm and 1984 Orwellian stuff. There were some German expressionist touches in terms of the way the school was shot once Dolores Umbridge really does take over at the school. I felt like I was watching some scenes almost out of Metropolis. There are parallels to the U.S. and its policies on torture that come up throughout the course of the film. There were things I could latch on to in addition to finally getting caught up in the actual story of Harry Potter. So it made me want to see the rest of the films in the series. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That one spends a lot of time in Harry's head and gives Radcliffe the chance to to show what he can do. It, you know, there, it's about adolescent anger and mm-hmm. his paranoia and loneliness it's you know it, it gets pretty bleak but it's the richer for it all right my number one is away from her which now might seem odd why wouldn't you have seen that movie well i mean think about a tough sell at yeah. that time think about the story here we have the depressing topic of alzheimer's disease it's also focused on an elderly couple who's unfairly, you know, not the sort of stories that mainstream audiences are clamoring for. Here it stars Julie Christie and Gordon Pinsent as a 50-year couple who are coming to terms with her Alzheimer's diagnosis. And it's from an actor-turned-director making her feature debut, Sarah Polly. Now, these days, for both of us, that's a huge draw, but... Actors turn directors making debuts. That's not necessarily always a surefire thing right. for a great movie. So that was not necessarily a selling point. Away from her, though, all that considered was a real revelation for me and kind of a, an awakening for me, too, about the sort of stories that um, I should pay attention to and should be open to engaging. It's just so perceptive and knowing about the aging process, even though it did come from such young filmmaker. Now, Ellis Monroe's short story provided the framework that Polly was working from, but still, this is such a knowing film. And it has this fierce career performance from Christie. It draws onto a whole lifetime's worth of thoughts and desires and regrets and dreams. And, and Polly just knows how to tap right into that. So I don't I don't think it's going overboard. I think of away from her often alongside the way it deals with domestic tragedy, the way it deals with things like memory, really alongside some of the work of Ingmar Bergman. It's that perceptive and that moving for me. So for a film that I had to see out of professional duty, essentially, it ended up being number six on my top 10 list for 2007. Yeah, I can't remember if it actually made my top 10 or not. I know at least one of those performances, if not both, cracked my top five performances, Gordon Pinson and Julie Christie, a movie that we saw, I want to say it's Sundance the year it came out and was really impressed with it and knew that Sarah Pauly was going to be a force to reckon with as a director. My number one 
couldn't really be more different than away from her. And this is a slight amendment to the topic. Not only would I have not seen this movie if I wasn't reviewing it, I wouldn't have seen it if I wasn't interviewing the co-writer and director. And it's the 2008 movie Role Models from David Wayne. Oh, yeah. He was someone I was aware of. I knew who David Wayne was, but I was totally unfamiliar with his work. I didn't watch The State or Stella, and I didn't even see Wet Hot American Summer until I think right before Role Models came out. I knew I was going to interview him, and I couldn't just seem so clueless that I hadn't even seen probably his most popular film at that point. And I like Paul Rudd, who stars in Role Models, but Sean William Scott, I'm still coming off of movies like the American Pie films, not really someone I'm dying to see on screen. But found out that David Wayne had made this film, was doing some press for it, was a fan of the show, and was interested in coming on if we wanted to have him. And so I say, well, we are going to have to see this movie and make a decision whether or not we do want to talk to him. Go do it and laugh harder than I probably laughed at any film that entire year. I do still think it's his best film overall. And not only was it really funny, but I wasn't finding myself laughing at all the obvious kind of raunchy or vulgar stuff. I was actually laughing at just some of the more deadpan lines or the asides that are delivered by great actors like Paul Rudd, like Jane Lynch, and yes, Sean Sean William Scott, too, who's hilarious in the film. He really is. It's a really grown-up movie, which sounds bad, but it's sentimental in all the right ways, in addition to being a little bit vulgar at times. And the ending, I think, completely delivers. It manages to be a little bit sweet, but it's true to everything that came before it. And there are just these really nice moments, like the one where Paul Rudd, who has befriended, it's Christopher Mintz Ploss, isn't it? Who yeah. is Augie, who's the kid who is wearing a cape and he's playing these role playing games. And he goes and has dinner at his house and he finally sees him the way Augie wants to be seen at that table by seeing him through his father's eyes. I think it's Ken Marino. He sees how Ken Marino is treating Augie. And at this point, he's developed enough of a relationship with him that he recognizes that there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that view. And he's not going to treat him like that anymore. And those kind of little character revelations are what make Role Models a really good film in addition to being funny. Augie kind of got screwed over today. I killed the king, Mom. Uh, he killed the king. All right, all right. He did all right, kill the all king. Right, 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 right. Don't encourage but him. But he was lying to everyone and, t- and told everyone that he killed me. I don't want to hear anymore about your Dungeons and Dragons or your fruity cocoa puffs or whatever all, the hell it's, it's called. It's all fairyland with him. We're trying to keep it. We're trying to keep it real. The goddess of Navalor saw me cry, Mom. Hey, Augie, when I was a little kid, I accidentally crapped my pants in front of a girl I liked. So I feel your pain. Well, he likes girls. That's a good thing. That's a surprise to me. Doesn't matter anyway. He got me kicked out. What? What? You're kidding me. They can kick you out? Yeah, I'm banned. This is a great thing. Way to go, big guy. Does this mean we can finally get rid of those boots and that god-awful cape that you made out of my tablecloth? I'm so sick of it. I'll burn them up in a bed. We'll we'll... have a bonfire. We'll make a thing of it. Don't you want them to wear what makes them happy? Well, being a fan of smart, dumb comedies and Sean William Scott, going all the way back to American Pie, I did seek out role models. So yeah, good pick. Those are our top five movies we had to review. I have no other honorable mentions. This was hard for me to put together. Yeah. What about you? The only one that I did think of was The Queen, actually, that contemporary biopic about Queen Elizabeth II. I mean, no thanks. Just just not that interested, even though it was from director Stephen Frears. But it ended up being on my 2006 top 10 list. There you go. Please send us your picks. Well, you won't really have any picks because you 
may not have had to review them. So this is one time that doesn't apply. You can't really put yourselves in our heads, but we'd love to hear your feedback on this top five or any other aspect of the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can always leave us a voicemail at 312-264-0744 or find us on Twitter at filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on film. And we're at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at our website, you can also find almost 10 years of show archives and vote in our current poll question. It asks you to vote for the Oscar outcome you'd most like to see. Out in limited release, opening in Chicago this weekend, Chicago filmmaker Daniel Nearing's Hogtown, a movie that sounds really fascinating. It's playing at the Gene Siskel Film Center. And Song of the Sea, the Oscar-nominated film for Best Animated Feature, is playing at the Music Box. It comes Josh Larson recommended and also recommended by me. Out in wide release, The Duff. This is Designated Ugly Fat Friend. It's, in quotes, a comedy. That's what they claim. Also in quotes a comedy, Hot Tub Time Machine 2 <laughs> is out this weekend, as well as Disney's McFarlane USA, Kevin Costner as a small town California track coach. Okay, gun to your head, and there is a right answer here. You have to see one of these three. Hot Tub Time Machine 2. Nice, you got it right. <laughs> Next week, we are going to review, let's see if we get it right, What We Do in the Shadows. This is a vampire comedy, a vampire comedy mockumentary, co-starring and co-written and co-directed by Jermaine Clement of Flight of the Concords. I'm really looking forward to this. I'm excited to see it as well. One of those kind of more obscure films, but again, we're not really getting a bunch of big releases. I know it's gotten a little bit of good buzz, and I think that has inspired our top five list, which is going to be in some way related to mockumentaries. Might be scenes, favorite scenes from mockumentaries. Yeah, so, mockumentary moments I think we're leaning towards. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music is by Nikki Lane. comes from her 2014 album, All or Nothing. More information is at nikkilane.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.